If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. The Stanley Cup finals have been set. What does that mean for Toronto Maple Leafs fans? Absolutely nothing. Here's Scott Thompson. That's just, that's just, you know, what is that? What's, who taught him that? Uh, Good afternoon. It is 308. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Uh, Great to have you here. Jump into the fun. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Talk, text, leave us your last word. Join us after the 5 o'clock news for another edition of Hammerhead Trivia. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. We would love to hear from you as well. Boy, lots going on today. Uh, you know, over and above Hamilton having, you know, getting on the worst roads list. And that's right. Take it to a politician, not to the media. Uh, anyway, uh, other than that, uh, fascinating uh, news coming out of Ottawa. Former leader of the Conservative Party, Aaron O'Toole, uh, says that CISA told him about active voter suppression by Beijing. Uh, that is the article in Global News on our website right now. And uh, I, I watched portions of this, and unfortunately I missed the beginning of it, but I'm trying to catch up on as much of it as I possibly can. But a visibly, visibly shaken Aaron O'Toole was standing in the house today wiping away the sweat and talking about what is going on in this country and how everyone seems to care except the Prime Minister and David Johnston. It was unbelievable to hear. It was uh, uncomfortable to watch. And how the Prime Minister continues to walk away from this, and again, why even do that? This is about democracy. This isn't about saving deep, dark national secrets. They'll be redacted. Let's be serious here. This government is hiding something. This government is hiding something. Why else when every single uh, opposition party and even those within their own ranks are saying we need a public inquiry and yet the prime minister refuses to, why would you not even just say yes to win back the support that you've lost. Let me ask you that simple question. Why would you just not, yeah, okay, don't know what it costs, uh, don't care what it, uh, you know, who who gets hung, who doesn't, you know, or just it, hopefully this will help, help us. Because it won't. That's why. And conservative leader Aaron O'Toole went on to say that this was about um, suppressing him and his conservative party who were more active against the Chinese Communist Party than what the liberals were. And it, it, it's, it's amazing, even with uh, NDP leader Jugmeet Singh, who's standing up today with the motion we talked about yesterday to having David Johnson removed from the rest of the process. But really, at the end of the day, he's the one that's that's driving the bus here and he can end this all just with a vote of confidence and at what point do you do that i mean it is unbelievably serious and and yet the prime minister and david johnston and and you know the people that are standing behind him um uh, just are in complete denial 
of this. And it's about our democracy. This isn't about the left or the right or the center or this, that or whatever party. It's about democracy. And it appears the prime minister either, as Aaron O'Toole referred to, is uh, either in on it or, and those are my words, or uh, just completely oblivious to what is going on. And, and and to say that this information isn't getting through is just not accurate. And it's at least getting to the prime minister's office. If they're deciding what to do with it other than put it on his desk, that's beyond me. But again, uh, the... the uh, the chief of staff for for the prime minister has already said, Katie Telford, that he sees everything. So, man, at what point does this have to go? Not for the prime minister to do something, because he won't. He's never done anything. He just changes the channel, starts talking about women's rights or starts talking about the climate or starts talking about saving the world. And, and so he won't do anything. So where is Jugmeet Singh on this? Like, honestly, how long? Can can you keep in in good faith su- supporting this government in in the decisions that they are making? Uh, fascinating stuff. We're going to be covering over the course of the afternoon. Want to play you a couple of clips on what Aaron O'Toole thinks of how this has all happened and and what has transpired, and um, and I'll I'll play the clips. It lies in the blindness to their activities by some figures in this government and in some of the senior offices that advise it. The government has gone from one diversion to another for years to deflect its responsibility in tackling this scourge of foreign interference. The final category of threat outlined to me, Madam Speaker, is related to voter suppression. Specifically, intelligence indicated an active campaign of voter suppression against me the Conservative Party of Canada, and a candidate in one electoral district during the 2021 general election. That is Aaron O'Toole, former Conservative leader in the House, uh, standing up and protected by his parliamentary privilege uh, and talking about his briefing with CSIS last week and being informed that he, um, uh, before, during, and after, is being targeted by the Chinese Communist Party. Um and again, we've heard from all levels of politicians on this, all different stripes of experts. And if your concern is really the country, is really, really saving the country and saving democracy, how can you not, how can you, how can you just close the window? And the only one conclusion can come from that, from my perspective, is you're protecting yourself. You're hiding something. You're way more interwoven into this than any of us are even imagining. And an inquiry would uncover that. And as the conservative, former conservative leader said, it was to benefit the liberals. They're not happy with the conservatives. They're tough on China. So, you know, the reasoning for not doing this just, it, it just becomes farcical. It really does. And again, it's these two people, meaning the prime minister and David Johnston and the people who stand behind them, who, what's the reasoning for, we already have that. Well, clearly it's not enough. So why would you not just do the right thing unless you've got something to hide? And how can you arrive at any other conclusion? And of course, the NDP and Jugmeet Singh who stands there and has the key 
to open this door, and he refuses. It's going to be interesting to see how that relationship progresses in the next day or two. We've talked a lot, uh, especially in the last few months, a couple of months, about AI and what it is. And it started, well, oh, something that the kids can use when writing their uh, essays for school, university, or what have you. And then we soon quickly realized, my goodness, this affects every single aspect of life, whether it is songwriting or what about even discovering new antibiotics. Scientists at McMaster University and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have used artificial intelligence to discover a new antibiotic which could be used to fight a deadly drug-resistant pathogen that strikes the vulnerable in hospitals. Uh, The process could be used to also speed up the discovery of other antibiotics to treat many other challenging bacteria to find more about find out more about all of this jonathan stokes is with us assistant professor department of biochemistry and biomedical science lead author on the study mcmaster university and with us now jonathan thanks for the time hope you're well i'm doing well how are you uh, so far, so good. This is fascinating. It just it, it amazes me how this meaning AI is has literally touched every single aspect of life. And here now you're talking about the development of new antibiotics. Uh, first of all, how does AI help? What is how is this a tool for you? That's a good question. And you're right. I mean, AI is finding its way into, you know, nearly every aspect of our life now. So it's perhaps unexpected that it would find its way into drug discovery, too. So you know, when we search for antibiotics, let's say we're, we're trying to find a new antibiotic using what I'll call typical approaches, for lack of a better word. That often involves going into the laboratory and testing perhaps hundreds of thousands or a couple million chemicals, right, against the pathogen you're trying to kill. So what that means is you have to sit in a laboratory and run a million experiments, right? So you would imagine that that costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time and is a lot of work. Right. But what if we could think about the drug discovery process slightly different? What if we could train an artificial intelligence model to help us prioritize which experiments to run in the laboratory? And that's kind of what we did um, in this study. So we did a relatively small scale test of chemicals in the lab. We tested seven, about 7,500 for those that killed this one pathogen and those that didn't. And then we trained a model on that data. And then we use that model to help us predict new chemicals that would have the activity against this pathogen that we were looking for. Um, You know, it's fascinating because as you were speaking, Jonathan, it reminded me of discussions we had with experts during the height of the global pandemic and how quickly a vaccine was arrived at. And I kept hearing the same line over and over again. We broke down silos. We shared information around the world. And that's one of the ways, reasons we came up with what we did so quickly. We shared so much information. It sounds like this, meaning AI, is doing that for you. Yeah, it's, that's a really interesting way of, of framing it. I'll tell you how I think about AI when it comes to antibiotics. Oh, I apologize. I often think about AI as suggestion generation machines. So hmm. you know, instead of having to go into the laboratory and run a million experiments to try to find that one drug that does the thing we want it to do, you know, an artificial intelligence algorithm, once it's trained appropriately, can provide a list of maybe a few hundred suggestions you know, of what experiments to run is, you know, so instead of having to, you know, test a million, it could say, here are the top 500 chemicals that I think do the thing you want them to do. And what that allows us to do is, my goodness, is zero <laughs> in on 
useful chemicals much more rapidly and ideally save a lot of money in the process. How does this change the game virtually in every uh, as in every uh, portion, in every um, part of medicine, including whether you're talking about cancer research, uh, research on, on something like Alzheimer's disease, or, or creating drugs like you're speaking of? How does this change the game? I think it's I think it changes drug discovery across, you know, nearly any disease area. And I'll explain to you why, you know, we use antibiotics because, of course, we need new antibiotics all the time. And that's what we're most interested in. But at the end of the day, these types of models that we use can be applied to discover drugs that do whatever you want them to do. You know, so in the case of cancer, we could feasibly train AI models to help us identify molecules, you know, new chemicals that would have activity specifically against one type of cancer, let's say, while avoiding potentially a lot of these side effects. You know, same for Alzheimer's. The limitation though, is um, in the data that we can acquire to train these models. These AI models are what we call data hungry. They need to learn from a lot of examples. So the challenge becomes not so much on the side of the AI algorithm, but on the side of the data acquisition before right. we can even train the AI algorithm. Because if we can't get the data, right, we can't train a robust and reliable and trustworthy model. Um, and you talked about running thousands of experiments with AI. You have to still do the same thing, but only once, and then keep adding to it as new information arrives. Yeah, exactly. And even the data um, that we have to acquire to train the model is significantly less than what would necessarily be hmm. required, you know, in a typical drug discovery program. So we can train, you know, in antibiotics, a, a, a really good model on, you know, let's say 10,000 chemicals. But, a, you know, a, a, a quite a common size for an antibiotic discovery screen using typical approaches might bring you up very easily 50 to 100,000 chemicals, right? So, we're, you know, we, we have to gather data in the laboratory, of course, to train the model, but it's still less than going into the lab and doing a full-scale screen. And what's really cool, and, and, you know, you alluded to this a little bit already, once we have a trained model, we can run predictions in the computer against, you know, vast chemical spaces, like hundreds of millions to billions of chemicals. And at that scale, like you can't do a billion experiments in the laboratory. So you need these AI methods to help you search through like these giant chemical collections in order to find, you know, the small number of chemicals that do the thing that you're trying to do. In our case, antibiotics, but it could be cancer, Alzheimer's, whatever. Uh, this is unbelievable, as, as most of the discussions have been around AI. This is the positive. We also are concerned of the negative. Is, is there any way this could be used for, uh, instead of good, evil? Where's the balance here? Is, could this be abused in some way? You know, it's such a good question, and one, you know, that we think about quite a bit, you know, working in this space. I think that, you know, more or less any truly transformative technology can be used for good things or bad things, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's up to, you know, us as the humans to decide what we're going to use it for. I'm, you know, a, an optimist in this space. And I think that the development of these AI technologies is going to be a net benefit to humanity. Um, that isn't to say that I don't think that people are going to try to do, you know, 
nefarious things with it. I'm I'm sure you know that's the unfortunate reality. Um, but by and large, and indeed in, in the context of what we're trying to do using AI to improve healthcare, I mean I see that as a huge benefit. You know to to the healthcare system, drug discoverers, clinicians, patients, everybody involved. I uh, only got a few seconds left. How quickly is this happening? Do we realize how quickly it's happening? It's, I mean, it, it, the, the development of AI technologies is moving as rapidly as any other technology has evolved before. I mean, this is kind of unprecedented. Jonathan Stokes with us, Assistant Professor, Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Science, lead author on the study, McMaster University. Fascinating, uh, Jonathan. Thanks so much for the insight. Be well. Thank you. You too. Have a good day. We certainly know how the Russian invasion of Ukraine has dragged on and on. And now uh, are we at a turning point here where Ukrainian drones uh, have struck Moscow uh, today? Russia said in what one politician called the worst attack on the capital since World War II, Kiev also getting hammered, uh, hit by air for the third time in the last 24 hours. We're going to talk to Arl Brown about all of this, Professor Internal uh, International Relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. Aurel, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you. Aurel, before we get on to the, the strikes in Moscow and, and what this means, just your thoughts on Aaron O'Toole, former conservative leader, uh, stepping up in the House today and telling everyone about his meeting with CSIS and how he was uh, under surveillance or target of uh, from the Chinese Communist Party before, after uh, the last election. What are your thoughts? How significant is this for someone of this nature to stand up and say this? It is important because it puts into the public domain some of uh, what we have suspected and it uh, alerts the public as to external interference, which we should have been aware of, but we did not quite understand the scope of it. It is very clear that the Chinese government, as well as the Russian government for a long time, have tried to interfere in uh, the politics of democratic states. That in, in itself is not new. The extent of that in involvement and whether that changed the outcome of an election, that is what really needs to be carefully investigated, both in terms of, of the past to know what exactly happened, but also as a means of preventing uh, interference uh, in the future that would alter elections. We can't stop it entirely. That will happen. It's inevitable, but we can try to limit it so as it will have a minimum effect. Uh, and uh, it helps if the public itself is aware of these possibilities. What should be done next? I think uh, there's a bit of a dilemma because uh, the former governor uh, general, uh, Mr. Johnson, said that uh, some of these things should not be discussed publicly, and one can understand the reluctance in terms of revealing sources and methods. But at the same time, the public uh, in a democratic state needs to be able to make informed decisions in selecting uh, a government and uh, reacting to government uh, policies. So it's a very fine balance. And it seems now that uh, at least some of this uh, is out in the open because Mr. O'Toole could use parliamentary privilege to make this kind of statement. So it will be interesting to see what follows.
Okay, let's move on to Moscow. What happened there, and how significant is this uh, strike against Moscow using drones? It's not the first strike using drones. You will recall that there was some drone uh, uh, movement yeah. where there was an actual attack on the Kremlin itself, not particularly effective militarily, but it uh, revealed that uh, Moscow's defenses, which Vladimir Putin has touted as the best in the world, are hardly impenetrable. Uh, but it sends also this attack a powerful message. We know that Russia has been relentlessly targeting Ukrainian civilian targets, and they've been doing this for over a year, causing havoc, uh, uh, bringing down power stations, power lines, trying to freeze and starve the Ukrainians. Uh, they have, uh, that is Russia, attacked Kiev this month alone uh, on 17 occasions, including today. And because of the timidity, particularly of the Biden administration, which has continually confused caution with timidity, caution is a wise policy. Timidity is destructive to deterrence and to effectiveness. Um, they, uh, the Americans have tried to prevent Ukraine from any kind of retaliation. So essentially, what Russia has been able to do was uh, uh, they were able to act in Ukraine, target anything they wanted to with impunity, while they enjoyed a kind of domestic immunity from retaliation. This attack, the Ukrainians, which uh, they have denied, uh, uh, but they said they are enjoying it. Uh, this tells us that Moscow no longer is able to act with the same impunity and enjoy the same domestic immunity. We've got less than a minute left, Oral. What's the reaction in Russia, both from Putin and the public? Does this strengthen the resolve? Does this weaken Putin? Uh, weak, uh, weaken Putin? Initially, whenever uh, any domestic front is uh, attacked, there's a tendency to rally around the flag. But in the longer term, this may have a, a, a very deleterious effect. It could erode whatever support there is. Mr. Putin reacted very harshly, and he made some very dire threats. He called this an act of terrorism. And very importantly, in uh, what he said, he also talked about the Ukrainians uh, having uh, uh, some other actions uh, uh, in the future or engaging some other action in the future, including possibly staging some kind of nuclear accident. Well, this is disturbing because there's a fear that Russia might do that in the case of Zaporizhia to distract Western attention. And it's a kind of nuclear threat. This is why the West should react very sharply to that and make it extremely clear to Mr. Putin that we're not going to buy any notion of some kind of nuclear accident. Uh, we will know it's staged by Russia. There's no reason why Ukraine would do it. And uh, Mr. Putin ought to be aware of the fact that there would be a unified and very powerful reaction from the West. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Arl, always fascinating. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. In all of the politics that is happening today and all that is going on, of course, um, uh, former conservative leader Aaron O'Toole speaking up in the House of Commons today about his meeting with CSIS and, um, and, and election interference over the 2021 election, visibly shaken. 
skin, uh, visibly sweating, wiping away the sweat. It was uh, is quite fascinating to watch. And in the mon- in amongst all of this, uh, over the course of the day, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP have uh, put forth a motion saying they want David Johnston gone and uh, to not participate in any further. Uh, committee or what have you, whatever it is, moving forward, uh, and of course renewed their calls for a public inquiry. Uh, is that enough? Let's bring in Wayne Petrosi, Professor Emeritus, Politics and Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Wayne, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, I'm well, thank you, and uh, no problem. Uh, Wayne, what is the significance of Jagmeet Singh's motion today about calling for the removal of David Johnston? Well, you know, I, I think the, the problem is that uh, we have uh, someone who's been around Ottawa a very long time, Mr. Johnson, uh, who was bound to create an, an, an atmosphere of it wasn't going to be straight up, that politics would be the thing that would drive uh, some of his considerations. And, you know, the irony is we should have known better. As I said, he's been around quite the while. I mean, he's the same fellow that uh, Stephen Harper turned to when Mulroney had that issue with some cash he was trying to explain away. And he appointed Mr. Johnson to, you know, provide an independent uh, review of that. And to no one's surprise, uh, he reported back that everything was good. In the same way, he's reported back again, except now it's with a different party and a different prime minister, that basically uh, things are good, leave it to us. Um, why would Jugmeet Singh, rather than do this, uh, at the same time he's calling for uh, a public inquiry? This is not a public inquiry. Why does not? Why does he not use his power on the prime minister to call a public inquiry rather than asking for the removal of Johnston? I mean, obviously, with the with the agreement that they have, he has the power to do this and the leverage. Well, I, I, I suspect it may have something to do. I know. He and some of his colleagues were read in that has provided the, uh, a, a briefing, a security briefing on this. And I suspect the concern with the public inquiry, which is of a different sort, has, has always revolved around the uneasiness of security agencies to ever make it possible for adversaries to figure out uh, methods and means by which they've been acquiring their intelligence. And uh, that's the risk you run if you end up in some kind of public inquiry where where methods and means may, may, may become possible. It may become possible for your adversary to recognize and to see how you've been acquiring information. Is this about hiding something or is this about exposing deep, dark secrets? Because I have a hard time believing that even with a public inquiry, we're not going to see some heavy redaction in some form where it's needed. Can we not get the answers to the questions without revealing deep, dark secrets? You know, that I wish I knew the answer to, like you. I'm both puzzled and intrigued by what's going on. I, I do think... Uh, that that is a a concern that drives it. But I I think it also speaks to, you know, we've been trying to tiptoe around the People's Republic of China, you know, for for quite some time. That's measured not not in months or years or decades. We've wanted to maintain a good economic relationship and we valued access to their markets 
so we always seem to walk around on our, uh, you know, on our tiptoes to us not to uh, 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 irritate them in, in some fashion. And I think that's it's put us in this kind of situation where now uh, they have recognized that and they've acted very aggressively. I mean, the presence of those unofficial police stations inside Canada uh, speaks to that, their, their willingness to, you know, go after uh, Canadian citizens and or residents uh, who happen to also have uh, Chinese backgrounds. It, it, I think makes it pretty clear that they they felt they could operate with uh, a fair degree of latitude inside uh, Canada and Canadian society. Is and, that not all the more reason, uh, Wayne, now to stand up to the Chinese Communist Party and 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 for a public inquiry? I think by, by all means, I think standing up to to the party and the government of China is very important. I think acting very aggressively on the uh, the presence of these police outposts uh, should be not even should be no doubt no hesitation they should move directly and they should shut them down and they should uh, require request that the people staffing them uh, leave the country uh, so I think by all means uh, we, we, we have to recognize China for what it is it, it's it's a it's a belligerent power that um, thinks it can leverage its economic heft into political influence. Now, as to, a, again, a public inquiry, I like you, I, I suspect we wouldn't see a lot of flame. We'd certainly smell and see a lot of smoke. Mm. Not sure we, we would see much else again because of just the degree of redaction. So is that a reason, Wayne, for the government not to do this? I mean, why not just do it to get everything off your back and move on? I mean, it just appears like they're hiding something, Wayne. Well, you know, it it, it, it may, you know, appear that way. But I, I suspect the security agencies are saying, please, you know, don't, in effect, blow up our sources where we have to start from scratch again now in a much more hostile climate uh, with, with the People's Republic of China. Uh, so I, you know, I suspect there's a great deal of, of, of uh, anxiety or insistence on the part of security agencies that, please, we, we, we do have some assets in place. We do have some methods and means by which we could, we're getting information, and we don't want that to get flushed down uh, as part of an attempt to uh, uh, please or appease uh, public demands for for information. Uh, now, you know what what I'm a bit surprised at, and, and it puzzles me, frankly, is is why the government hasn't uh, read in provided crackdown brief, briefings of a, of a much more thorough nature yeah. to the leadership of the various political parties in Parliament. Uh, I, I, th that's not unusual. We see that happen among some of our allied countries, you know, uh, r routinely, you know, in the United States, uh, senior Republicans are right in on all of it. Wayne, I'm going to have to cut you out there. We are plumb right out of time. Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus of Politics and Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University on the politics of the day. Wayne, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Oh, you're welcome. You too. We've talked about AI uh, a lot. I think we've already, have we already talked about it on the show today? I think we have. 
And it seems as if you know, it started with the kids in the essays, and now it's you know taken over the world. Top artificial intelligence executives, including OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, said today, uh, joining experts and professor is, uh, professors in raising the risk of extinction from uh, ra- raising the idea of the risk of extinction from AI, which they urge policymakers to equate at par with the risks of uh, that you'll see posed by pandemics and nuclear war. 350 signatures wrote a letter published in the nonprofit Center for AI Safety. Who even thought there was a place? Uh, to talk more about all of this, David Shipley is with us, cybersecurity expert and CEO of Voceron Security, and here now. David, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you for the opportunity, and I am doing well. So uh, your thoughts on this report, it's like the, you know, the person that invented Frankenstein is all talent and all now telling us to run for our lives. What are the real concerns from these CEOs? Well, I, I, I think these CEOs actually have a, a bit more of a cynical reasoning for um, trying to blow the trumpet as loud as they are. I think, frankly, that um, we're not there yet in terms of the risks that they are they are portraying. And I think they're trying to get us. Uh, hyped up so that when we eventually see the real harms of AI, we're like, well, it's not so bad. It wasn't the apocalypse. And the realities of the real harms of AI have actually been here for quite some time. It's social media algorithms that poison people with um, all kinds of misinformation and disinformation. It's the use of algorithms that can be discriminatory in hiring processes. So there are lots of real world harms here today that aren't about Skynet. And, and we're nowhere close to that. But it's to their benefit to play it up this way right now. Uh, if it's to theirs, wouldn't it be to everybody else's to be prepared? Well, no, what they're trying to do, particularly the leaders in AI, is they would like to really much put a moat around what advantages they've built in their technology and slow everybody else down. So they're not doing this out of altruism. This is pure capitalism and building competitive moats. Um, and, and, you know, we saw that when Sam Altman was proposing that AI firms had to get licensed by the government. And it's also obvious that they want to shape what regulation looks like versus having regulation imposed on them by duly elected officials like what Europe's done, because Europe's actually taken a firm hand on, on AI. And interestingly enough, Sam Altman came out against it uh, before having to back down. So they created it. They want to control it. Is that your point? They created it. They want to control the competitive environment for it. And they want to distract us from the real harms it's doing today on a much more less sensational basis in terms of its potential for discrimination and harms to racialized communities. Um, They would rather us fear the apocalypse or pretend, which is absolutely absurd, that this is a bigger threat near term to humanity than climate change. David, we talked earlier today, I know what it was, it was regard uh, antibiotics they are coming up uh, with at McMaster through the helping AI being a tool in the toolbox to help them do that. Um, So how can AI CEOs um, um, have this much leverage, power, because they're only one piece of the puzzle, and this is something that literally uh, affects every single aspect of life, every industry, every including medicine. So are there not enough on other CEOs? CEOs to call them out on this saying, well, you know, it is bad in some ways, but, you know, if you use it for good, is that not being monitored? 
Well, and that's exactly what why I'm 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 pushing the, the sort of the counter narrative that I am right now mm-hmm. because initially I was a bit alarmed with the speed at which things were were playing out, but I've had some time to actually work with some of these generative AI tools, the leading edge, the Chat GPTs, etc. And I've actually seen a bit of the wizard behind the curtain where these things are actually still terribly flawed. They are not conscious. There's no uh, cognition. There's no, I think, therefore I am. They are high-speed idiots that are really lucky at guessing a lot. And and so these tech CEOs are pumping their valuations for their AI companies. In some ways, I think we're going to see a, a little bit of a skid on that when people realize just how often these AI bots get it wrong, lie, or just flat out make mistakes. Uh, garbage in, garbage out, as they say. Like any tool, this depends on how it is being used. So make sure you monitor and 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 regulate how it is being used. Exactly. Like I, I think what we've talked about in Canada that you know we don't want to rush legislation out that actually just gives advantage to incumbents and they actually make a ton of money hiding behind pretending to be the good guys that ask for this regulation. We want regulation Mm. that actually holds companies accountable that makes sure that if there's any potential for financial or safety harms to human beings, the companies actually have to be accountable for that. And they have to be able to explain how their AIs make decisions back to people. And I think those are fundamental things that are pretty basic right now that um, would get lost in this science fiction fantasy right now that Skynet is coming. It's not, but there's lots of harm that's happening right now that we should not lose sight of. You bring up a valid point. We can't agree on regulating the Internet. How do we tackle AI? Well, exactly. I think we we have to look at fundamental human rights and making sure that algorithmic decision making that um, may influence what rental apartments you get, what jobs you get, um, you know, all those things that may be happening behind the scenes are very transparent to people that uh, also when people are interacting with um, AIs, AIs should have to disclose you're not actually talking to a human being right now. You're talking to an AI. And I absolutely think there should be a hard stop on the use of AIs in chats for uh, mental health therapies because we've actually sadly had our first uh, casualty from someone interacting with a chatbot in Europe who where the chatbot actually encouraged that person to take their own life, and they did. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, how do you put a stamp? How do you regulate this? How do you uh, put a stamp on what is real? What is not, uh, the information you're getting is AI generated. I mean, is that even possible? It is possible. Like I was uh, just at a a high level meeting of of some of Canada's biggest security, um, firms, leaders, experts, um, here in Ontario and at the Cambridge forums. And, what I can tell you is, is there are ways for an AI to be able to tell that an, that something was created by artificial intelligence. So we're, we're getting really good. The problem is um, the speed at which misinformation can spread via fake news um, is often uh, the old expression that a lie can run around halfway around the planet uh, before the truth can get its shoes on. And I think that's still the problem. And the solution to that is all of us, all of us have to treat every digital media we see now like it's April Fool's Day. 365. Mm. You should question everything you see. Can AI call out AI? It can. Um, There have been some really good examples and and some suggestions made that um, artificial intelligence algorithms can actually, with 99% uh, accuracy, call out uh, video deep fakes, um, some audio. It's a little less um, accurate at textual-based sort of fake material or misleading information, but Um, There are fingerprints still when a bot is trying to play games. 
So really quickly, David, should we be scared of AI? What's your message here? The message is be careful with the motivations for those calling for regulation and what exactly their mo- their final end game is. The folks that are actually making hundreds of millions of dollars of this, when they come out uh, this strongly for regulation, be a little suspicious and cynical about it. Another angle. David Shipley with a cybersecurity expert, CEO of Boceron Security, talking about AI and those on each side of it. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care and stay safe. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It lies in the blindness to their activities by some figures in this government and in some of the senior offices that advise it. The government has gone from one diversion to another for years to deflect its responsibility in tackling this scourge of foreign interference. That is just a portion of what uh, former conservative leader Aaron O'Toole had to say in the House of Commons today. Uh, Incredible to watch, uh, sweating profusely, would grab a handkerchief and, and, and wipe his face and such uh just uh incredible and it just makes you shake your head and wonder what is next so let's bring in phil gursky president of borealis threat and risk consulting distinguished fellow with the university of ottawa's national security program former CSIS analyst and here now phil uh thanks for the time hope you're well good it's been a long time since i saw you scott oh that was yesterday wasn't it I know, it's amazing. When we can get you, we'll take you anytime we can. Uh, your thoughts on this. This was inc- I only saw the last portion of this live, but it was incredibly moving. Yeah, I, you know, what it shows, Scott, is that this campaign by the PRC to try and push our election in a certain way, and we know from other intelligence they wanted a minority liberal government to be returned. But for Mr. O'Toole to say that CSIS told him he was targeted directly and that China was doing this to try to you know, affect our elections in a very serious manner. This is serious stuff. And it certainly puts paid to this notion by the Trudeau government and others that, oh, there's nothing to see here, folks. Election wasn't really affected. It's free and fair, et cetera, et cetera. You know, can I say this is getting terribler and terribler, Scott? It just seems every day we're getting something new on this file. Uh, and, and, you know, as you were saying that, that's what I'm thinking. It's like there is nothing new there uh, here. It just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Does this having the, the, the head, a former head of the Conservative Party come up and say this, does this change the discussion? I hope so. Um, I'm not optimistic. I really think that there are far too many people that don't take this seriously enough. But the the, the PRC was, was was targeting the actual leader of the opposition in such a way as to try to ensure he does not get elected, either with a minority or a majority government, and that the government of the day is returned because it's seen as being, shall we say, nicer or more open to the PRC. Uh, that speaks volumes as to, I think, PRC intelligence and interference uh, sophistication. And it also should be a real warning to Canadians that uh, this happened on at least two occasions in 2019, 2021. It can happen again, and and who knows how many times it happened in the past. There could be more allegations in in the coming days and weeks of more Chinese interference. Stay tuned, my friend. Um, I just had a guest on that said uh, or alluded to that CSIS uh, uh, probably doesn't want any of their sources revealed or any of that. How would CSIS feel about the calling of a public inquirer? inquiry? I mean, I'm guessing that if it's that top secret, it's redacted anyway. How would CSIS feel about a public inquiry? I don't know if we've asked that question. 
It's a good question. I, I can't speak for CSIS, but you know, Scott, how often have you and I talked and you mentioned that I used to work for CSIS. I'm very careful in telling you and your listeners what I know and what I think. I don't cite sources. I can couch things in certain terms to say that, you know, um, I can certain details I can't provide. I've been doing that for the past eight years since my so-called retirement. It is doable. And I think that the problem, I think, for security services, they get to the point where they say, well, what if we're asked the questions that we say we can't answer? Then people say, well, you can't answer because you don't know or because there's things you don't want to disclose kind of thing. So it's a bit of a, a tough, I think, choice for CSIS. But at this point, given the, the seriousness of the leaks we've been talking about for the past couple of months, the public already knows that CSIS knew a lot from its investigation. So I, I don't think there's any real danger in having CSIS speak out uh, to, to a greater extent. Many Canadians are trying to figure out the reasons why they're not having a public inquiry. And, of course, we hear exactly what you've just said. It reveals too many deep, dark secrets. Um, um, are there really any reasons from uh, you know, a, a democracy perspective not to have a public inquiry? I mean, it, because when you can't see a reason, you make up your, your own reason, and it, people keep coming to the conclusion that they're hiding something here. Why else wouldn't you just do it to get all of this off your back? That's the downside, is in lack of information, people start going down the, down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theory. So that's not health, health, healthy for a democracy or for Canadians, I think. You know, Scott, it's not rocket science or a state secret that CSIS can obtain a warrant to, to bug someone's phone or email. That's right in Section 21 of the CSIS Act, which is a public document. The fact that CSIS can recruit human sources is not a state secret at all either. The only thing that it won't disclose is the actual nature of what particular source led to what particular intelligence. And like I said, you and I have spoken, and I can refer to times in my past where I've seen intelligence. I just will tell you where I got it from. I can tell you as a sensitive source and leave it at that. Uh, so I think there are ways to do this. I mean, my own, I'm dithering on a public inquiry because I'm wondering how effective they are, but it seems now that the, the vast majority of Canadians want to see something done. And if that takes the form of a public inquiry, so be it. I'm not sure that we're going to get a lot of results, but I, I think at the end of the day, the, the current government just can't keep kicking this can down the road. Too many people are upset and angry and rightfully so. Uh, Jugmeet Singh, uh, calling for the uh, resignation of David Johnson from any sort of further involvement on this. Would he have been briefed and know something that we don't know? I'm not sure. We don't have a, a history or a practice, uh, Scott, in Canada of, of briefing opposition members. Other countries, I'm pretty sure, do. In my time at both CSE and CSIS, it tended to be senior public servants with a security clearance as well as the government of the day. I think we would be we would benefit more from bringing at least the leaders into the conversation because they are the leaders of their party. They're sworn to the same secrecy as, as the current government. Does he know something? I doubt it. I, I think that we all agree that Mr. Johnson was a poor choice for a variety of reasons. We all know what those reasons are. Proximity to the, to the prime minister's family, no background in intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think what he's saying is that if we're going to go further down this pathway and learn more, it has to be somebody with some knowledge of intelligence and experience, not a complete newcomer who was briefed for the first time, what, 45 days ago? That's not, that's not, that's not, that's not sufficient. Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, former CSIS analyst. Always fascinating, Phil. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. I'm sure we'll talk again soon, Scott. Bye-bye. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
We've been talking uh, about uh, former Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole uh, standing up in the House's Com- House of Commons today and revealing as much information as he could uh, about the meeting he had with CSIS where they informed him Beijing had worked to suppress votes in the 2021 election and that he and uh, members of his team targeted. Gordon Holden with us, Director Emeritus, China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, and here now. Gordon, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Thank you, Scott. So leak after leak, interference after interference allegation, uh, majority wants a public inquiry. Now we have Aaron O'Toole, former leader of the Conservatives, testifying in what was a pretty moving uh, presentation. My goodness, he was sweating and, and wiping his brow with his with his handkerchief and such. Um, what's the significance to this? Does it change the discussion in any way? Well, I think it is part of a drumbeat of revelations that collectively um, – spells serious trouble uh, for our failure with regard to our failure to address uh, political interference by China. I think what's particularly important about this one is he was party leader and this is taking place. But what I took note of his comments, and these, of course, is his rendition of what he was told by CSIS, and clearly that's not everything he was told. He had to hold some things back. But I thought significant here was the to me a revelation that it was the party itself that was targeted, not just the individual mm. MP. That adds another layer of seriousness. And of course, we've seen uh, other MPs come forward um, rather late. It's uh, there seems to be lots of discussion. Or there was at the beginning of all of this. Maybe we're you know um, we're, we're just putting two and two together now. But uh, the prime minister was blaming CISA, saying they didn't get the information up to him. Uh, we've had this debate over and over again on the show, and 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 why that seemingly just doesn't seem to make sense. Um, and Aaron O'Toole didn't blame CISIS. He blamed the apparatus of government and it not getting the attention that it deserved. Well, I mean, here's the thing, I suppose. If you're the chief executive um, or the head of government, uh, presumably you bear responsibility for what happens under your watch. Um, you may, there are a lot of things happening, and nobody expects the prime minister to know everything is happening, but clearly there's been a failure in the system that critical intelligence is not getting to the right level when it's not being acted upon combination of those two things. So I think this is quite serious. I have another thing that bothers me, though, is that now on the Prime Minister's instruction, MPs who have been targeted in the past, um, clearly CSIS has gone back through their records and are speaking to them individually. But I have concerns. What about people who aren't MPs? What about others uh, who might be other mm. public figures who may have not been targeted? Uh, what about them? And I think that then again points to the need for a more systematic examination of the problem. Uh, I'm totally in favor, of course, of the MPs being notified and be able to be aware of this. My question is really, what about others? Um, the NDP, Jagmeet Singh, has put forth a motion today asking for David Johnson to step down away from any further involvement in this and then reinforced again his call for a public inquiry. I'm looking at a uh, a, a newscast right now. The headline is Singh, won't, uh, Singh will not force an inquiry. Uh, he has the power to do that. Uh, asking David Johnson to step down but not forcing an inquiry, is that enough? Well, what I understand of Singh's most recent comment, he's saying that we can't have an election now uh, because they, he has to have, has to have confidence in the system. It's a bit of a circular argument in a way. Um, yeah. 
I think a public public inquiry will not solve all problems, mm-hmm. but is an absolutely necessary step. There's other things that need to be done, but that's a critical one. Uh, where do you see Jugmeet Singh in this moving forward? Can he continue to walk this incredibly fine line when it's he that can obviously make this happen whether you know my goodness the last two elections were under the cloud of all of this and the prime minister is also called for by-elections that are coming up so how how would we never hold another election because we're fearful of this well that would be i mean the logical conclusion of that argument you can't have elections because we can't be confident um and we're not confident so we can't hold elections um we don't want to go to that space um i'm not a political figure so i'm not going to pine on a, a party preference basis but Clearly, um, we need to move forward with the democratic process. Clearly, uh, there has to be a public inquiry, uh, which won't solve all the problems, but it's a necessary step, I think, in clearing the air. The problem is it takes a long time. Public inquiry can take six months, a year, two years. Uh, I don't think everything can stop and wait for that. Um, I think a combination, if there's an election in that time frame, which we presume there will be, I think a combination of an inquiry ticking in the background and a heightened, um, hyper-vigilant intelligence organizations keeping an eye on what's happening and informing uh, the political players, but also the public as to any problems that are emerging. I think that could work. What should the prime minister be doing to ease our concerns? Well, I think it's pretty clear that the public inquiry route is has broad public support. It has the support of all of the opposition figures. And I think the public inquiry... Who heads it? Uh, there is a precedent in that, in that at least one of the intelligence uh, review organizations um, has uh, the, the National Security Intelligence Review Agency has in its uh, composition uh, provisions for that the government consult with opposition leaders and others in selecting that person. So I think a, a credible person to head a public inquiry and a thoroughgoing public inquiry, which couldn't be rushed but shouldn't take forever. Uh, I think that's what has to be done. Failing that, I fear that even if it's all, sometimes I think it's not just what you are doing, but what you're seen to be doing. Even if the government's working at fever pitch behind the scenes, which I hope they are, to shore up the defenses, to be more attentive and communicate better, I worry that if the public and the media don't see that or can't understand it, there won't be buy-in from the public. And Buy-in to our democratic elections is absolutely essential. People have to know that the elections are fair, unbiased, properly conducted. And until that's done um, and is seen to be done, I worry that uh, it weakens our democracy. Gordon Holden with us, Director Emeritus, China Institute and Professor of Political Science with the University of Alberta. Always fascinating, uh, Gordon. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. The same to you and your listeners. All right, let's chat uh, chat about the uh, the politics of the day. Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. Of course, first have to ask you about uh, Aaron O'Toole, former Conservative leader in the House of Commons today, uh, giving quite a speech in which he was visibly shaken and sweating and 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 mopping down and such. How is that playing out in Ottawa today? Yeah, I've just seen little bits and pieces of it because it only happened a few hours ago. Look, Aaron O'Toole is somebody who is very well respected here, um, though he was the opposition leader. And sometimes you could make some enemies along the way. I think uh, he's uh, well regarded by his political foes. He's a former military person. So I think when they see a veteran 
somebody who understands national security react as emotionally and, and I'm saying it's a responsible emotional reaction the way Aaron did, it uh, it sticks with you because that wasn't drama, Scott. That wasn't created. That was Aaron mm. feeling the way he felt. And the only other thing I'd add quickly, if I remember correctly, I believe not unlike Michael Chong, uh, Aaron has family friends connections in Hong Kong. So to think that this was going on while, you know, he had family or friends over there, it's, gosh, that's, that's worrisome. Does this change anything? Obviously, the Prime Minister digging down on what David Johnston said, no uh, public inquiry. Jugmeet Singh steps up today, introduces a motion asking for an, uh, a public inquiry again, but also that David Johnston uh, is removed from any further discussion on this. That being said, just saw an interview very recently on CTV where the headline was, Jugmeet Singh will not force an inquiry, which means he won't threaten uh, the Prime Minister with an election of some sort or or uh, you know uh, to change his agreement with him what does that say uh well it, it continues to say what we've said uh for a while when you and i've discussed this this is a this is a really important story but it's not a story that moves votes uh you know the economy healthcare, they move votes and jagmeet singh knows that so his you know hard line uh, is not as hard uh, as as it may be if it were were another issue and that's why he's taking that posture. You know, back to what question he asked a moment ago, does what's happening with Aaron change anything? I don't know if it does in the immediate term around the politics. Does it influence Mr. Johnson in any way to change whether he stays or goes? I just think, that again, it highlights for the public, or maybe it's a bigger wake-up wake call for the public, about this is real. This is happening. And, yeah, it's not affecting your wallet yet, uh, but it is affecting Canadian parliamentarians, and it's it's not something that's part of a Jean Lacarte spy novel. It's happening. Why not a public inquiry? How is the prime minister going to handle this, uh, even up till now or, or moving forward? Because, you know, many have said through CSIS or whatever, you can get around the, the issues of deep, dark secrets and all that sort of stuff. So uh, at the end of the day, it appears like he's hiding something if he's not doing this, considering the amount of people that actually want this. And even those that at the beginning of this discussion said, nah, you know, public inquiry is not going to do anything. It's like, no, nah, this has gotten so out of hand. It's the only answer at this point. How, how does the Prime Minister move forward with this and justify his position? I think he's going to try and change channels, Scott. And by that, I mean, uh, you you remember the great word, prorogation. Uh, we haven't said it for a while. It was a tactic used by the Harper government when things got difficult for them. And of course, the Liberals condemned it, and they weren't going to use it to the same degree. And what it means is, Basically, Parliament stops in its tracks and uh, the House of Commons rises and there are no committees and no irritants if you're the government. There's a big suggestion around here uh, growing louder. The prime minister sometime soon is going to prorogue Parliament, maybe uh, within the next two weeks. Uh, That will at least stop some of the parliamentary inquiries around all of this. Uh, then he's probably, Scott, the other rumor going to floating around, change his cabinet up uh, and try and, you know, change the channel on all of this. I don't think that's going to stop people in the security establishment and elsewhere from coming forward with new aspects uh, of this story. But I think he hopes that that will focus Canadians on other things. And with the summer coming, 
also hoping that that becomes a distraction for Canadians and their interest in this wane. How can this do anything more than ferment, like garbage uh, left on a hill? Um, Like, you know, you can talk about saving the planet. You can bring up abortion rights again. You can try to change the channel, talk about how bad the U.S. is, what the heck they're up to. But at the end of the day, I mean, hasn't this made enough impact with the Canadian public that they're at least watching, they're aware of it, and realizing they're not doing anything? Not on this issue alone. I mean, and I just say that based on the data, right? The stuff I'm seeing with advocates data, the awareness is high, but it's not, you know, it's, it's a public safety and security issues, which this would be one of them, are way low down uh, among the, the matrix of the top five priorities. Where I think Polyev wants to get at him is around competency and trustworthiness. So they'll try and weave and bob around this, but... Polyev also needs to stay focused on the economy, too. So uh, Trudeau is, I, I guess, hoping that with the House rising, there won't be this daily, incessant drumbeat for action. So, you know, as much as you and I might like it to get into the, the, the hearts and minds of Canadians at a deeper level, it's not happening yet. And I, I think, Scott, until sadly... Um, we see something dramatic in terms of Chinese or a Russian or another foreign state actor interference, it will be less prevalent uh, for people. What would be the next shoe to fall other than Aaron O'Toole testifying or talking about this? What, what needs to happen? How big would this have to get? Uh, I think maybe it has to get into the house of the prime minister, right? Maybe it has to be about a cabinet minister, um, uh, being imperiled in, in his or her um, election and the clarity of interference there and or the opposite of that where, you know, the Han Dong situation that we talked about, some story emerges where <coughs> it's alleged a, uh, a senior member of the party who isn't Hong Dong was, uh, was involved in or was encouraged by the Chinese. And there, to be clear, I don't want to start any rumors and conspiracy theories around that. None of that information exists at the moment. That and or, you know, the prime minister knew about the things related to Aaron O'Toole and didn't act. That would be a big one. And again, there's nothing to suggest, just to be clear, that that is the case. Uh, okay, let's move to the Alberta election. We don't have much time left, unfortunately. Sure. Uh, why are we so concerned about this in the East? I remember working in Calgary for three years and, and meeting Mayor Ralph, Ralph Klein, in which he addressed me as an Eastern scum and pig, all with a laughter and a glass of beer, and explained to me why that was the case. And he was right. We don't really care about the West. Yet, when there's an election for some, well, no, when there's this election, apparently it was a big deal. Why are we so interested in this election? I remember John Crosby used to call Albertans in the, of that day, uh, and you'd appreciate this, Scott, blue-eyed sheep. And so much they were in charge. And the quick answer to your question is because of the closeness of it and what it may mean federally, specifically as it relates to a battle between polarizing rhetoric and <clears throat> NDP policy. So that, that's why there's so much interest out here. Uh, and Daniel Smith holding on and how she held on is being going to be analyzed to the to the nth degree, as is the penetration of Rachel Notley's campaign in Calgary. Um, people trying to determine, you know, are, is pro- progressivism taking a toehold in Calgary? And the fact that now, I guess you can argue, at least simply based on the results, that there it's a legitimately a two party state in Alberta, which it wouldn't have been the case when you were out there. 
and hasn't really been in the last, what, 40 years, arguably. So that's why there's interest in it. And the final point, I guess, is what will Daniel Smith's ongoing election mean to the Federation? She's already signaled last night. She tends to intends to continue a combative tone. How will that affect the rest of the uh, rest of the country? Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director Abacus Data, and commenting on the politics of the day. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Scott Radley joining us now, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, how are you today? I could not be better. Scott, how are you? Oh, same here. I'm just, uh, yeah, better's good. Uh, wh- uh, your your thoughts on the Stanley Cup finals? You know, we were. Uh, I remember the kids and I talking when there were still four teams in it. It's like all these teams are Southern teams. Yes. Uh, is this what Gary Bettman is looking for in a Stanley Cup final? Are they still playing? Is it still <laughs> on? I don't know. Um, I, I, this, this is a giant cosmic practical joke that the teams that care about hockey are long done, especially the Leafs. Yeah, Leaf fans yeah. are watching this going, wait, we've been at this for 56 years and Vegas is back in the Stanley Cup finals again. They've existed for what, six years. They've been to four conference finals and two Stanley Cups. This is, this is someone's idea of a joke. Um, and the Florida <laughs> Panthers who, yeah, they've got, you know, they've filled the building now. But there were times in January and February when you would call and say, hey, what time does the game start tonight? And they would say, what time can you be here? I mean, there was nobody <laughs> who was there. So this is, um, this is a, this is a battle of the, the, honestly, this is a battle of the who cares for most people, but you know, they're playing and they have to award the Stanley cup to someone and, um. You know, uh, I just, but I, we always remember it. We always remember the day where, you, you know, it was, uh, Gary Bettman wanted to hit the four corners of the, yes. uh, of the continent and that he would rather have an East versus West, whether it's in LA, New York, whatever, big cities, that sort of thing. And as you mentioned, this isn't that at all. Um, does he care? Oh, I Do think the owners I, care. I think Gary Bettman, uh, is, is probably doing back handsprings in his New York or New Jersey place. I mean, this is for him, the idea would be look at all the attention we're going to get for our Southern teams. Expansion teams. Yeah. And my answer to that is goes back to what I was sort of half jokingly saying before. Let's see what this looks like next January or February in Florida and see if this really does have any kind of long-term impact or if like a lot of things, people will jump on it while it's hot because, Hey, it's the thing to do. But when the regular season comes along, we're back to where no one cares anymore. I sure they're going to pick up a few fans. There's no question. They'll pick up a few fans. Is this going to turn Florida, for example, into a hockey hotbed? Mm. And, and even, even Vegas, like one of the things about Vegas that I think is really fascinating is they're doing well now and they've done well since they came into the league. They were also the first pro team of any sport that was in Vegas. Well, now the Raiders are there. They're yeah. drawing a lot of attention and they're, they've just, you know, the Oakland A's. F1 race. And the, and the Oakland A's, terrible as they are right now, they're about to move to Vegas. And the thing about the Vegas Golden Knights is they've only ever been good. Let's see what the fans do hmm. when the inevitable happens and they aren't so good all of a sudden, and you've got NFL football and major league baseball and probably an NBA team coming. Then let's see how you're drawing. It's going to be tough. I, I, 
I think Vegas teams will always be successful because it's Vegas, and there's so many people coming there from so many different parts of the world, whether it is racing, whether it is sports of some sort, or the various things that you've just talked about. So I think they've got that maybe, ace in their maybe. in their back pocket. Florida, I think it's a different story. Do you think this boosts their season's ticket sales for next year? I mean, if you're a snowbird, you're going to probably be in, but how much of... Uh, of of their arena is filled with snowbirds. I don't know. Does this boost season's ticket sales for them? And I, and again, I would say, okay. So they let's say they get a few hundred more. I mean, I don't. I really, Scott. Like, let's have this conversation again in February when it's freezing cold. I would bet you right now that when we're talking about them in February and the Ottawa Senators or the San Jose Sharks have rolled into town, you're not looking at a full building. You are looking at a half full at best building and that's, you know, that, that's the big question is, as you just said, is this the kind of thing that suddenly turns that around? And I would say, I doubt it because the snowbirds, if you want to go like the, the, the snowbirds who are from Canada, they'll go, if you're a Leaf fan, they'll go to see the Leafs. They'll go, if you're a Habs fan, they'll go see the Habs or Ottawa or whoever. But I just... There's been no evidence. And remember the Florida Panthers have been around for a while. They've been in the Stanley cup finals before. Yeah. It didn't seem to turn them into one of the hottest tickets in sports. The fact that they had success in the past, they are fans that will be there if things are going great. And otherwise, you know what? It's South Florida. There's a beach. It's Miami. We'll find other things to do. Scott Radley with his host of the Scott Radley show coming up after the six o'clock news, read him, uh, read him in your Hamilton hey, can spectator. I, can I yes, very quickly ahead. tell you what's yes, coming yes, up yes. at six 30 yeah, quickly, the greatest house that's for sale in the world. We've got the listing agent coming on the Brady bunch house listing agent in California <laughs> is joining me at six 30. <laughs> is Alice still in the house? We think uh, she is, but, uh, maybe under the floorboards. Yeah. Preserved in a tomb somewhere. That's right. It's All like, right. It's that's like Tomb to- only with Alice. <laughs> It's got Alice in the blue smock. All right. Thank you, Scott. Have a great one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word via email from Mr. Lowe. School boards must remember that their primary role is to serve the needs of all students. We are living in very challenging times. The York District Catholic School Board's refusal to fly the pride flag is very similar to what is developing in Florida now and what happened in Germany in the late 1930s. The denial of certain people, their basic rights and freedom and expression. So sad to see this happen in Canada, Mr. Lowe. 99. 99- 